One year, I kind of got an idea, you know, I want to try trap. I like to trap, I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Purpose and Game magazine. There's structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because working ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get them better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Back in the fur shed, this is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Great to have you here as always. This podcast is brought to you by Kaatz Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Kaatz Brothers is the place to get your trapping supplies. You don't need to get started on the trap line. They've got traps, lures, baits, books, DVDs, everything you need to get going. So check them out at KaatzBros.com. Great guys, great service, great products. Brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction, where the world comes to buy wild fur. Fur Harvesters is run by trappers for trappers doing their best to get your fur in front of as many buyers as possible get the best price uh, that we can in the low fur market go to their website furharvesters.com for upcoming auction dates past auction results shipping instructions pickup schedules and agent information learn more there and send the fur to them all right guys we have an episode tonight with all kinds of little information from a variety of different sources so been doing a bunch of interviews got a, a good interview loaded up uh, that we're going to get into a little later not tonight but uh, I, I decided to take a break and just catch up on some other trapping related topics that I haven't had a chance to talk about much so we're going to we're going to roll through a bunch of stuff uh, first just a quick update on the fur uh, market so there there haven't been a a whole lot of changes everything kind of just is in limbo waiting for major sale results and and uh, transactions to take place to see where we're at with prices but in general we can we can see that things are not you know they're not going to be spectacular there but they also don't appear to be getting any worse um, a couple of new developments uh, one one major one was there was a saga furs out of finland held a auction that included the sale of some Russian sable which are kind of like the the ranch version of of a similar fur to Martin uh, Martin that we would sell here and those Russian sables uh, I don't have a lot of past information on past auction results for those but uh, overall results appear to be pretty weak so um, it, it appears that the Martin um, market is is not going to be spectacular. You remember at the end of last season, the last auctions of the year, it was hard to move Martin 
and a lot of them got held back uh, because the the minimum prices weren't being met so uh, that's unfortunate because a couple years ago we had a pretty good market but um, it seems like you know that martin are a pretty small item in terms of volume and also number of buyers that are, are interested in them so uh, they that price can change pretty quickly depending on fashion trends and economic conditions uh, and, and those sort of things so stay tuned but what I did uh, the few Martin that I caught this year most of them I I just took uh, you know the beauty of Martin is they're really small so once I had them skinned out and fleshed and dried stretched and dried I took uh, most of them and I got a a nice long vacuum bag and I put them use my vacuum sealer and I vacuum sealed those Martin and got them um, got them in the freezer so got all the air sucked out of them um, in a vacuum seal bag in the freezer they should last for at least a couple years without any issues whatsoever and I'm just gonna kinda wait and see what the uh, what the market does I've got some Fisher I've got I got one really nice Martin that I I couldn't stand to to hang on to, I, I, I couldn't stand to sell it really. Um, so I kept that, I held that out, and I'm going to send that to Moyle Main Containery, uh, probably Moyle, we'll see, um, and and try to get that tan, just a beautiful color. One of the cool things about Martin is they the colors can vary so much depending on where uh, where you are in the country, and some people on their trap lines they can vary. Uh, depending on different areas and just or just within one population one area they can have a wide variety of colors in general our martin are in northern maine are not the color that the market really likes market likes those dark chocolate brown colored martin ours are more uh, orangish and gray uh, a little variety a little bit of both those colors so but this one was like a really bright orange it's so thick and full and prime uh, man, it's just too beautiful of a pelt to to to, uh, to send off and get 25 bucks for or 20 bucks for. So that's the thing that I've been recognizing more and more over time is that is is how how much of a quality product wild fur actually is in terms of being able to be put to use. So I've been uh, kind of you know in the past I've always had to just sell as much fur as I could to pay the bills, pay the gas money, pay my expenses and buy traps and that sort of thing. And I'm starting to move a little more towards it where I, I want to start saving some of this fur and making making some items that I can wear myself uh, or give away as gifts, that sort of thing. And and that kind of I kind of been inspired by talking to a few of you guys who who have been doing that and getting your first hand and I, I'm not I'm not a sew person. I'm I'm not a crafts person by any means. So I don't know as I could go ahead and sew that together myself like some of you guys are doing. But um, I I certainly can catch the fur, send it off to get tanned, and send it somewhere to get made up into into something. So uh, there's a couple of you guys that I've talked with in the past about getting some say some beaver gloves or something made up, and and I certainly am going to. Um, pursue that here here in the future but but yeah low fur market why not have some things made out of out of your fur and i get to thinking a little bit about you know using martin you know they're a very small animal so it takes it's going to take a lot of martin 
lot of tan martin pelts to make anything uh, substantial but i think there's some some options out there i i think martin would make a really cool hat and a really warm hat so if anybody has any ideas uh if you if you know of someone or if you make uh, a hat out of something like martin fur um, or let me know because uh, i i think that'd be pretty cool to try out so and i'd and be interested to, to hear how many martin it might take to to make a hat and and look into that so always uh looking for ways to use the fur from the animals we catch and in in times when you know the price isn't that great so uh other fur items uh, i we don't have many results yet there's a few people that have sold to grunwalds and and other places and just mentioned prices here and there but it's hard to really use that uh for, for specific numbers um maine uh, the maine trappers association usually holds one of the earliest state association for auctions uh, in the country and uh, they had uh, oh by the way the thompson um in canada they have something called the thompson fur tables that's an auction that takes place in thompson manitoba canada and that's a pre-Christmas sale, so it's an early sale, and guys bring a lot of Martin there, basically get Christmas present money and, and some spending money early in the season. And uh, their Martin uh, averaged significantly lower than, than the same sale last year, so uh, kind of consistent with that Russian Sable sale. Uh, but but as far as other fur items, the, the Main Trapper Association Fur Auction gives a little bit of a sneak peek on some items uh these this auction i mean it it the prices are not what you're going to see at like fur harvesters they're they're not going to be as high as fur harvesters but uh it it comparing year to year gives you a pretty good idea what's going on uh there weren't a whole pile of fur of animals that were sold so we don't have a lot to go by on most species. Um, and that was probably a result of just the low prices. Not not a lot of people want to sell their fur right off. There were 59 beaver. Those sold for an average of $9.20. And, I mean, that's consistent with what we've been seeing. But I, I think it's a little bit low. I think we're going to see beaver prices at fur harvesters uh, a few bucks north of that. Only two bobcats were sold. 64 coyotes were sold. And... Long-term average for coyotes in this auction is probably around twenty to thirty dollars, and they averaged uh, thirty-five in this auction. So that was that was pretty encouraging. Um, just a few Fisher, um, some Gray Fox. It just uh, you know Fisher were thirty-five bucks. Gray Fox were sixteen dollars and seventy-five cents. There were 42 mink sold for an average of $8. Not a surprise. Mink are, are going to sell low. They're going to continue to sell low. 425 muskrats sold for $3.37. So not too bad. $3.350. That's about what we were expecting. Skunk did well. Uh, $11.25. So there's apparently a couple buyers looking for skunk. Probably for some novelty uses. There were 25 otter that sold for an average of $31. 30 red fox averaged 1750 which is a little higher than we're probably going to see for a lot of fox uh, throughout the country. Um, but yeah, that was just a, a little nice little um, 
preview and pretty consistent although I think the beaver sold a little bit low hopefully that's not an indicator of, of a weaker beaver market uh, I think we're gonna see a little better than that but um, it, it bodes pretty well for you know considering where we're at and what we expected uh, for the uh, upcoming auction season that we're gonna see here in a couple months hearing a lot from you guys getting a lot of emails and pictures thanks so much for the pictures one of these days I'm going to get off my butt and find some time to to post a bunch of those pictures up on the site um, or somewhere but right now I get them I'm hoarding them in my email inbox I got lots and lots of pictures of fur and uh, a lot of feedback from guys who I sent my uh, experimental long distance call lure as well as the the uh, the regular long distance call lure that I that I've sold for years and uh, lots of good feedback positive feedback um, of course I know the you know the LDC lure works it performs well it holds up it's an it's an awesome lure I love it I use it myself all the time but uh, it was encouraging to see the results guys are getting with the the experimental lure as well so I haven't decided yet whether I want to uh, I want to actually make that and sell it commercially or or just kind of make a few batches here and there I don't I don't know yet I uh, I have to uh, have to put together a bunch of ingredients and kind of commit to producing that thing and and I'm kind of one of those guys I'm half in and half out of the lore business I guess um, I I don't uh, I don't I, I haven't really pushed to be a, a lure maker I, um, and and I I like to experiment I I have you know I if I come up with a formula that I'm confident is is going to produce and is good lure you know I'd, I would consider selling it but at the same time um, I'm not really uh, I'm not super super passionate about being one of the 60 or 70 different trapping lure makers in North America or, or more than that so uh, so we'll see I, I'll, the LDC lure I, I will continue to make that and, and it is very popular I've just sold sold uh, quite a bit more of it this week um, I made another batch uh, when I run out of this batch I I don't believe I will sell it for at least uh, I'll probably I probably take uh, take a few months off from making it we'll see see how much demand there is but um, I'll, I'll probably take a break because we're heading toward the off season and so uh, so if, if you do still want to get some before the end of the season uh, check it out trappingtoday.com you can find it there or you can find it on ebay and uh, got got a little bit of it left so so that's that lure and then the experimental lure I actually do have a little bit of that I don't, uh, if I ever do decide to sell it I have I have some extra that I have made up um, or maybe I'll send some to to guys to, to try out more of in the future the Walter Arnold book um, I'm I'm still working on that. If you follow trappingtoday.com, there are several new articles that I put out, uh, old Walter Arnold articles, and some uh, some pretty cool ones. I had actually had some time to sit down and and work through a bunch of those and and start cranking some more of them out. So, if you're interested in that old historic trapping from back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. There's some cool stories there that you can find on Trapping Today, and I am still working on turning that into a book, so it's just all it is is a matter of time. Just uh, I think I'm more than halfway through, so uh, it's just a matter of uh, when I'm going to get all the way through and, and be able to, 
to finalize that. So stay tuned. I do still have you guys who who have expressed interest in buying a book when it's ready. I have you guys written down. And if you uh, have not expressed that interest and want me to reserve a copy for you, uh, jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. Let me know. A couple of the more recent stories. Uh, Arnold had a an article in the 1950s he that was titled Me and Paul. And it was about um, Walter Arnold was kind of in his in his 50s uh, <clears throat> and he was you know getting on in years and had a lot of responsibilities and wasn't trapping quite so much as he had before and so his trapping cabin out in the woods and all his trails and everything was kind of he was a little concerned you know he was going to get you know if you don't if you're not there maintaining things they they go away and the trails grow in and your cabin gets into disrepair Animals break in, other people break in, someone might take over your area because you're not kind of uh, not trapping there anymore. They don't think you're going to use it anymore. So there's a lot of concern with with no longer maintaining a place or or keeping up uh, a trap line. So he he got a letter from someone who had read his articles in Fur Fishing Game magazine and the, the guy had, had just come back from the military. He was from Pennsylvania. And he wanted to, before he settled down and and got a job and went into the normal life um, that Americans uh, lived at the time, he, he had a dream that he wanted to go in the woods and run a trap line for one season uh, before he settled down. And he wrote Walter Arnold asking, you know, if he knew of any opportunities and Arnold said, yeah, I, I know of a I know of a cabin that's not being used very much. It's very well stocked. Um, there's beautiful trap line. No one's trapping within many miles of it. And and uh, and and on and on. And, and he kind of scoped them out and and checked in on some references. And and it, he ended up inviting Paul um, Paul out to trap on in his cabin uh, for the winter. So they had quite a it was quite a season and the article is a real long article goes into that whole story. So I think you'd enjoy that. Um the another one that I published recently talked about the uh the fur market and it kind of I what I do is I kind of put a little introduction uh to each of these articles that kind of tries to tie in the the modern day perspective and how uh, things are different today than they were when when Arnold wrote these articles 50, 60, 70, 80. No, there was, it was 70, 80 years ago. It was a long time. We're already in 2020 now um, as you listen to this. So uh, pretty crazy. But yeah, I, I so th- this one, my introduction, I said, there are no new problems in this world, just old ones recycled in different form. Um, I think the saying holds a lot of truth in a lot of in all aspects of life, including trapping. As I write this, the fur market is at one of its all-time lows. Fur prices don't come near reaching the cost of production for a trapper, and we struggle to see an end to the terrible market conditions. Without an understanding of trapping history, many of us assume fur prices were always better back in the day, but that isn't the case. There were lows along with the highs, and some periods were just as depressing to the trapper as they are today. When Walter Arnold wrote this article back in the early 1950s, the fur market was at a very low point. Most species had little to no market value, 
and trappers were struggling with what to do. Interestingly, the and, and I go on talking about how the markets changed over the years, but um, it, it, it was fascinating to me to think, you know, we think, oh, this is, this is the worst it's ever been. We always say that, right? This is the worst storm we've ever had. This is the coldest weather we've ever had. This is the warmest heat wave we've ever had in history. And the weather service always finds ways to, to figure out, to find a record here and a record there and, and dramatize everything to make it interesting, something to talk about. And we do that with the fur market. This is the worst market we've ever had. And I'm not discounting that how low the market is right now. Maybe it is the worst. But uh, what I am saying is in the early 1950s, it was a pretty terrible fur market. And and uh, it, it's it's just not the case. Uh, it's not true to, to say that fur prices were, were always better than they are now. Because there were... There were items that you just had had absolutely no value back then and, and weren't worth trapping at all. And uh, you know, we're st- in in Montana and Wyoming, you're getting hundred dollar coyotes still in in Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, and and there were no hundred dollar coyotes back then, even in in uh, in 2020 dollars. So, um, just an interesting little little history there on on fur prices. Um, I had a couple couple more that I went into uh, one was a really long story that Ar- Arnold uh, and and a buddy uh, spent uh, a winter trapping together um, and I titled it never too late for a trapping adventure they were kind of in getting in their in their 50s and and uh, but they're still get, still got out there and, and spent a winter on the trap line and then I had one called water trapping the fox and and Arnold talked he described in detail how to make the water set or the spring hole set for Fox, which was a very popular set back then. Um, so a little little history there, and, and maybe you learn a little bit about trapping methods back in the old times. Some news. Um, there was some controversy over uh, the northern stores uh, up in, in, uh, in Canada that decided they were going to stop buying fur, and then that uh, a few days later they reversed their decision, and fur harvesters came in and... Uh, and uh, agreed to back them and help them out so that they they are back up buying fur again. Uh, so that was a quick little story. Um, and then Minnesota put on notice over incidental trapping of lynx. So um, we've kind of talked about this. I've talked about this in the past, uh, way back, probably a year or so ago, uh, that, that guys in Minnesota pay attention because you are in a similar situation to Maine. We were kind of the front lines of this anti-trapping move uh, using in quote-unquote endangered Canada lynx to try and ban trapping. And uh, we fought it off, but we lost a lot of our ability to, tr- to trap in certain ways uh, as a result. And uh, I did predict when we, get, when we got the lynx exclusion devices here, I, I did predict that Minnesota may have to use those in the future. So... Environmental Group has put Minnesota DNR on notice. It plans to sue the agency for failing to protect Canada lynx from trappers. That's the Center for Biological Diversity filed a 60-day notice. This was back uh, on the 4th of December. File a lawsuit, try to force the state to follow the Endangered Species Act, and blah, 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 blah. So uh, pay attention to that, guys. Uh, The sooner lynx can become delisted and I don't know what the status is in Minnesota but I assume if it's anything like Maine uh, 
lynx in in uh, the northern areas are more common than we ever thought they were in the past and they are uh, very much deserving of being delisted um, and managed as uh, hopefully managed as fur bears someday um, as opposed to being considered a, a quote-unquote endangered species so keep an eye out for that you never know what's going to happen hopefully nothing comes of it but um, but uh, but uh, keep your keep your eyes and ears open for uh, things like that anti-trapping initiatives we got to watch out for I had a couple of book reviews that I've talked about before on the podcast and I just posted uh, up the reviews in their written form on the website. Those were uh, Sam O. White, Alaskan. That was the story, very long story uh, and fascinating story about Sam White who was from Maine and moved to Alaska back in the 20s or 30s. He became a a bush pilot. He was a, a a game warden there in Alaska before Alaska was even a state and lots and lots of adventure there. Uh, it's a great book. I really encourage you to pick it up. And then the book Mink Mary and Me, Trapping Adventure in Northern Canada, Chick Ferguson and his wife Mary on the wilderness trap line there back in the 30s as well. Uh, awesome, awesome book. That thing has always been very out of reach because it was so difficult to find copies of it. Uh, and you almost could never find one for less than a hundred dollars. Uh, the cheapest I ever found one was forty, and I bought it in a heartbeat. Uh, but they typically sell for a hundred dollars because it's never been reprinted. Now that just changed apparently because I I pulled it up on Amazon and somebody commented on the site that they found a cheaper copy, and it does turn out that it's been reprinted. So. Uh, it is available, um, and it's it's really affordable. It's like I think it's it's less than fifteen dollars. It might be even less than that. I'll have to have to check it out. But but yeah, go to uh, trappingtoday.com if you you can find that Mink Mary Me. Click on it. Actually, if you click on the Amazon link there and you buy the book, I get a little bit of a kickback from Amazon, just a, a small percentage. And we'll talk more about the Amazon shopping world here shortly. But uh, it helps support me and support Trapping Today. But uh, yeah, I don't even know. Like I assume that, that I would have loved to reprint that book. But I assume that it was copyright protected. And uh, typically anything after 1924, right now, 24, maybe 25, has, uh, has copyright protection and cannot be reprinted without permission of the author. And, and of course, Chick uh, Ferguson has been dead for many many years as well as his, his wife Mary and so I don't know how uh, if permission was granted or uh, to reprint this book or someone just went rogue and and got it printed out or what but um, but it's there and it's available so uh, so check it out I I think it's a book that every trapper should read it's awesome and I got more books that I'm gonna be reading this winter I'll be posting up reviews on I want to share a recent article with you from Fur Bear Conservation, our friend Jeff Trainer, over at FurBearConservation.com. He has been crushing it. He's writing a bunch of articles that uh, about trapping and wildlife management and and how how trapping is integral role plays an integral role in fur bear management populations. He's an excellent writer. And he put together this article 
that is titled Two Weasel-Like Creatures Vying for Forest Turf in the Northeast. And the article was especially interesting to me because I trap Martin and Fisher. Martin are my favorite animal to trap. I love Martin. They're probably, they got to be my favorite fur bearer. Yeah, until I trap a wolverine. Um, <laughs> Martin, what I love about Martin is uh, they, the Martin is kind of, to me, kind of the symbol of wild places. They they signify wild country, wild ground, uh, wilderness, quote-unquote semi-wilderness, I guess you could say, uh, intact forest, healthy forest. Uh, Martin are, are kind of the symbol of of those things, of all things that we consider good uh, as as outdoors folk, and uh, we have seen changes. We we've seen a lot of intense intensive timber harvest that has changed where we see Martin um, in the Northeast. And so Jeff writes about this interaction between Martin and Fisher, and it's a very complex one. There's a lot going on there. Um, and, and he dives into it and does a really good job explaining all the all the various uh, factors and, and how uh, trappers, uh, th- I, there was a little bit of research done in Quebec and biologists were interviewed a bunch of trappers and just talked, learned from them about their observations on where and when they would see Martin and, and see Fisher and how that's changed over the years. And they observed very similar trends and patterns uh, that we observe here in Maine where it appears that we're seeing fewer Martin and more Fisher. Um, As far as fewer Martin, I'd hesitate to say too quickly whether that's uh, absolutely occurring because um, Martin have been pretty adaptable to a lot of the changes and uh, without, you know, without having some solid data to show that decline in Martin numbers. I don't know as we can say that they've declined. I do think that it's almost impossible to make the argument that Fisher have not increased substantially. Um, the The amount of Fisher tracks that, that I see and that other folks see in in this area, um, in, in not only in the farm country, but in the big woods, and how that's changed over the years, it, it's fascinating. Um, I when I started trapping 15 years ago, I did catch a couple fisher, but uh, I caught, uh, in three years, I caught somewhere around 30-ish martin and two fisher. And, uh, you know, now I'm I'm catching, so, you know, uh, 15 martin to a fisher, and now we're, we're more like, uh, I, I have, I, I, I have friends that trap the far northern tip of Maine, and they still have a similar, uh, similar ratio uh, that that I used to have 15 years ago um, but but now I'm seeing like two or three Martin to a Fisher so um, it, it, and it's not for necessarily to for lack of uh, lack lack of of of, uh, of Martin it's just incredibly abundant Fisher numbers so what's changing well uh, climate appears to be changing, although that is very dynamic, and and uh, I hate to, I don't want to get into too much detail and get us out in the weeds on this, but because uh, there, you have an overall change in climate or or weather patterns and trends, um, but you also have um, land use practices that influence the effect that climate has. So, uh, 
let's just just looking at Jeff's article, he talks about how um, Fisher and Martin went together. Fisher are always more competitive, um, and Fisher are the bigger animal. Uh, Fisher will kill Martin if if there's any interaction between the two species that's hostile. So so if a Fisher can catch a Martin, Fisher gonna kill the Martin. Uh, a so you would think well. If that's the case, and Fisher are becoming more abundant, and you know, wh- why do you? How would you have any Martin left? Well, there are things that limit Fisher populations as well. Uh, that is not really trappers. I think you, if you look at the trapper harvest of Fishers, it's it's very low right now. It's probably as low as it's ever been because we're we're required to use these lynx exclusion devices. Most of the Fishers traditionally were harvested with uh, 160 or 220 body grip traps and leaning pole sets up here uh, during the Martin Fisher, during the general trapping season. Uh, and very few are harvested in footholds uh, because the early fox and coyote season when most of the foothold trapping is taking place uh, up north, um, you have to release any fisher. I've, I've done that. I've caught fisher before during that season and released them alive. Um, but by the time the fishery season starts, a lot of guys have hung up the foothold traps. Conditions, weather conditions are tough, and they're moving on to body grips. Um, now that we have to use the Lynx exclusion devices, we we have incredibly high refusal rates uh, uh, in those boxes, and the fisher, the larger fisher, just can't fit in the box. And so I've the mo- the biggest I've caught has been 12 pounds. Uh, in in the Lynx exclusion devices, um, and the majority are probably uh, five to nine pounds, something like that. So we're getting some smaller fisher. We're not getting the bigger ones. Um, so there there are a lot of fisher outs. Tra- so let's say trappers. Let's assume trappers are not influencing fisher numbers in a negative way. Um, what is well the uh, the, the sort of the basics of wildlife habitat relationship research has shown that fisher are limited by snow depth and because fisher are a little bigger than martin they have a little heavier foot load on the snow if they get really deep snow they don't do as well they can't hunt as efficiently um, so a lot of fishers would starve and and so the snow depth limits uh, the ability of fisher to uh, to thrive in in the north woods so the further north you get, the deeper snowpack you have, and the fewer fisher you have, the more uh, the more martin theoretically you have because martin love deep snow; they're well adapted to deep snow. Now that's the surface level of what's going on this interaction between these two species. However, digging into it, let's dig into it a layer deeper. Let's peel back another layer of the onion. And, and get a little bit more uh, complex uh, because not nothing is as simple as as it seems on the surface. So the the Martin and Fisher interaction as it is uh, it is an interesting one. And so in general in farm country you're going to see more Fisher. Um, actually speaking of having a lot of Fisher, I, I got 50 acres here um, by the house where we live. Me and the boys just ran a line of six traps and we caught three Fisher. Um, in the deep woods way up in the high country as high as I could go uh, earlier this fall I ran uh, 
geez, I can't even remember how many traps I had out, um, between 30 and 50, depending on, on the time, and I, I never got a single fisher out there, um, I got a, I got a handful of Martin and no fisher, so, so that's the, your basic, you know, open farm country, uh, less snow, generally, I mean, we, we don't have much less snow, but generally more open farm country, you're going to see, uh, more fisher. However, last year I trapped in an area that was just as far deep in the woods as I was this year and was uh, just as far north and just as high elevation. And I saw more Martin than Fisher. Or more, sorry, more Fisher than Martin. Quite a few more Fisher than Martin, believe it or not. What was going on there? It's not farm country. It's deep woods. It's high elevation. It, in theory, it gets deep snow. So if you dig a little deeper in one extra layer, you learn that Martin like deep, soft, powdery snow. They don't like crusted over snow. Fisher struggle in deep, soft, powdery snow. Fisher can handle deep, crusted over snow. So Martin are adapted to hunt subnivian in the middle of the winter. That means under the snow. And when the snow gets too deep, there's really not much food to eat unless you can catch a squirrel. Um, there's not much food to find. Um, around that time, Martin dive right under the snow and they hunt underneath uh, the snow and they'll be uh, down at the ground level and they'll they'll be hunting for voles and, and mice um, uh, under underneath the snow. That's how, th- that that is, is the adaptation that Martin have to succeed in the middle of winter in northern climates. The fisher, he's not he's not doing that. He's not poking through all those little holes in the snow and digging little tunnels and stuff and he's walking on top of the snow. And so when that snow gets soft, deep and fluffy, uh, the fisher packs it up and, and he goes into the cedar bogs, uh, the areas that have real thick cover where the snow is not that deep and, and his range is pretty limited. So, what is going on where you have this intense timber harvest? Because one thing that we do notice is where a lot of tree cover has been removed, you actually have deeper snow because the trees intercept a lot of that snowfall. And the snow actually, when it lands in the branches of the trees, uh, it it actually goes through a process where... um, I don't know if it's called sublimation, the snow essentially evaporates over time uh, from the trees and it never reaches the ground. Only a small percentage of the snow reaches the ground in a thick overhead canopy cover forest. Um, so in in an open cut area in the middle of the deep woods, the snow piles up deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So you think, well, that's good. It ought to be good martin country. So t- harvest isn't gonna, timber harvest isn't going to have an impact on martin population. However, dig another layer deeper. When the sun shines on open country in that deep, deep snow in an area that's been harvested and there's no canopy cover to intercept the snow or the sunlight, the sun shines on it and forms crust on the surface of the snow. All of a sudden, you get a layer of crust and you get a series of layers of crust after several snowfalls and sun and snowfall and sun. And you suddenly have a habitat type that favors fisher walking on top of the crust 
much more than it favors Martin trying to dive through the snow and hunt underneath the snow and having to deal with that crust um, that makes it more difficult to, to go through the snow. So it's interesting, right? Uh, d- just things, that in, and you can probably use the, think of these same concepts with coyotes and fox, with, uh, with every other critter, coons and mink and everything that we trap for. There, there are these different variables that on the surface it seems like uh, automatically boom, 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 this means that, and that means this. Uh, but when you dig a little deeper, there are a lot of nuances and a lot of things that uh, maybe we aren't always considering. So um, check out Jeff's article, furbearconservation.com, uh, and, uh, and, and I hope that you read it. Uh, maybe give him a shout-out, leave a comment, and, uh, and uh, support that. He's doing a lot of good work there. Now, speaking of fur bears and research, this is something that is really cool, really important. I told you that we'd get back to this uh, this whole Amazon thing uh, because Amazon's kind of taking over the world and a massive company. And if you are like me, uh, a lot of the audience is is my age demographic, and we do a lot of our shopping through Amazon. Instead of going to the grocery store, even for food, a lot of times uh, Amazon Prime brings a lot of stuff to my house, um, and and it's incredibly convenient. Uh, it's the the price is very competitive, and all around it's just smooth, quick, simple. Um, so so it works. Now there is something that a guy, the guy that has I can't I don't even know his name, but he has the Trappers Report. He listens to the show. Thanks. Um, he goes by uh, NY Hunt Fish on Trapper Man, and he he brought this up a while back about something called Amazon Smile that he used to support some gun uh, or or like a NRA NRA type group uh, or whatever on Amazon Smile, and, and asked about the possibility of of using this to support trapping. And so I looked into it and actually uh, Fur Bears Unlimited is eligible, is already set up for Amazon Smile. So let's take a step back. What is Amazon Smile? Uh, first, when I they were when I was ordering on Amazon a few months ago, the, this Amazon Smile thing would pop up and they, hey, dude, would you like to donate to charity? And I was like, I don't want to do that. Are you kidding me? I'm not, I'm not a donator. Um, I, especially not to charities because the vast majority of them seem like they don't do what they uh, they say they're supposed to do, or or a lot of the charities are animal rights, humane society of the United States. People think they're donating to help out um, animal shelters, and in fact, a lot of that money, the, the HSUS is actually a group that lobbies to ban trapping throughout the United States. So uh, it, it's always a, a dangerous thing. So I just ignored it all the time. Um, but I looked into it a little bit when he mentioned this because it turns out that Amazon Amazon Smile is an opportunity where Amazon basically I think it's just good PR for Amazon that they're helping out helping you help communities and groups um, nonprofits that any nonprofit organization can qualify for Amazon Smile any 501c3 and Amazon will donate half a percent of every sale that goes through Amazon Smile. And so, and they will donate it to the charity of the shopper's choice. So basically, if I go through Amazon Smile 
and I select a charity of my choice, they will donate half a percent. If I if I uh, spend a hundred bucks, they'll donate fifty cents to the charity of my choice. And so I thought this was just you know kind of a waste of time until I saw there there are a wide variety of choices in charities. And how do you do this? Basically, uh, the only drawback is you can't do it on the app. And I order a lot from the Amazon app. But on your desktop, you type in smile.amazon.com. Instead of just amazon.com, type in smile.amazon.com. The Smile site is identical to Amazon's regular shopping site. Except it just has Smile in front of it. And all that does is specifies that the shopping you do there is going to go uh, is going to help go toward your charity. This does not cost you a penny extra. That fifty cents comes out of Amazon's pocket, and so all the items are priced the same. And uh, this money goes to charity comes out of Amazon. So, Fur Bears Unlimited is an excellent group. They are a five hundred one c three group that. Um, is dedicated to research um, and promotion of the wise use of fur bears. Um, they're a very pro-trapping group. Uh, the group is essentially run by trappers. Um, they have done a lot of great things. Uh, they've donated, they've, they've uh, provided grant money to a number of different states to do fur bear research to promote um, conservation. Uh, their big their their mottos are education, conservation, and habitat. So they're teaching people about fur bears. They're uh, learning more about fur bears, uh, helping to protect habitat, helping to conserve these fur bears, and uh, and use trapping uh, as a management tool. So if you go to smilethanamazon.com and you search for fur bears unlimited and click them on as your charity, I've done this. And for the past couple of weeks, every one of my Amazon orders uh, has been, well, it's actually only been a few days now because I, um, anyway, I, I was uh, I was ordering some of that through the phone app, so it didn't count. But if I go to, I'm going to pull up Smile right now, and it what it does is it shows you how much has been donated to the group. Uh, as a result of your efforts, and uh, it hasn't been much. I've only donated 17 cents. Um, I actually have a few orders today. I'll probably that'll probably be up to a couple bucks here in the next week. Um, so that's my impact. Uh, the overall impact. This is brand new. I think they just they just started in November, um, and or, or whatever it was, it was very recent so there's only like there's like 50 or 60 bucks that have been donated to uh, fur bears unlimited through amazon smile so of course if you look at it like overall amazon and the whole amazon world they've donated 156 million since uh, uh as of november 2019 to two charities worldwide um from through amazon smile um, fur bear 50 60 bucks so we got a long ways to go but the good news is nobody knows about this yet so there's only a few people that are if you go to fur bear unlimited website it's there but there's really no other way to find out about this so if you shop regularly on Amazon through your desktop or laptop computer um, go to smile.amazon.com select fur bears unlimited and you can do your part without costing you an extra penny you can do your part to help 
um, provide funding for fur bear research and education. And let's look into just a little bit of, of what these guys do more specifically so you can get an idea of, of what kind of positive impact you can, you can be helping. So their motto states that Fur Bears Unlimited is dedicated to the promotion of research and proper management of fur-bearing species to ensure a harmonious balance uh, of cohabitation with other species within their respective ecosystems. They provide support for organizations and research involved in fur-bear species and sustainable enterprises related to these species. Fur bears are true renewable resources which contribute greatly to native ecosystem functions as well as local economies. That's us guys trapping. Uh, thanks to the cooperative effort of government and private wildlife managers, our other wildlife species are well managed and thriving. In turn, our forests, meadows, rivers, swamps, marshlands are alive and vibrant. So their mission is to improve knowledge as well as inform and educate the public about fur bear species to stimulate public interest and appreciation of fur bears and natural resources and the need and importance of restoring, using wisely, and scientifically managing fur bears, and to promote improved environmental education and coordinate and cooperate with other organizations, agencies, and individuals with similar interests. What are some of the, uh, the grants? Uh, let's look at grant recipients just to see the sort of things that they're funding. So here's just a, a summary of some of the things they funded. Wisconsin, and this is stuff all over the country, uh, Wisconsin Fur Bear Ecology Workshop uh, put on through the Wisconsin uh, DNR and Wisconsin Trappers Association. This is a hands-on fur bear ecology workshop originally designed for college students at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Northland College in Ashland. Uh, it's a five-day course. And uh, they're actually using this course to, uh, to they're, they're, they've kind of expanded this and they're teaching like other uh, wildlife agencies across the country. So uh, this, is, this is a good outreach and education program. Delta Waterfowl Predator Study. There is a, a study um, that co cooperation with Delta Waterfowl to look at uh, duck production um, and and. Uh, areas that were uh, had focused predator trapping and uh, areas where there was no predator trapping taking place. So looking at the impact of predator control on waterfowl production. There was a river otter study in Ohio uh, that looked at home range, habitat use, movement, and survival of otters. There was an Iowa bobcat study uh, through Iowa State University. Uh, did a bunch of work on bobcats there. Um, Arizona a Trappers Association and the Boy Scouts, uh, they did a big, uh, some big training sessions there to help educate people in fur bears. There's a Children's Hands-On Museum in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So projects all over the place. Um, the Yukon Kuskokwim Mink Festival in Alaska uh, assists the Alaska Fish and Game Department and Alaska Trappers Association um, to... Um, the proper techniques assist youth of the Delta region to the proper techniques of trapping and fur handling. It's the homeland of the Yupik Eskimos. Trapping was once a major part of their economy and lifestyle. They don't trap much anymore. The funds uh, donated by FBU were used to convert trapping educational videos into the Yupik language. Um, impacts of fur-bearing mammals and fragmented habitat types. Um, 
and Contrasting Nutritional and Behavior Ecology of Coyotes in Various Landscapes. This was a Purdue University project. Pine Martin Habitat Research in Montana and Old Growth versus New Growth Timber. Uh, beaver reintroduction in the Gallatin River in southwestern Montana. So lots of stuff that Fur Bears Unlimited has helped fund. And uh, if you can do your part, check that out, Amazon Smile. Uh, you can become a member of Fur Bears Unlimited. Uh, or you can just use your shopping habits to, uh, to, to help them through this, uh, this program. All right, guys. Well... What else you want to talk about? We're almost, we're, boy, I had a, I had a topic that I was going to get into, and I don't know if I'm going to do it now. We're, uh, we're, we're running pretty short on time. I'll tell you what, I'm going to tease this. Uh, uh, I want you to go to trappingtoday.com as you're listening to this, and uh, remember the search bar on the website. Uh, you go down the sidebar there. If you're on your mobile, you'll have to go way down to the bottom. But uh, there's an area that says search this site, and you can click on that search bar and type in uh, something. So if, if you are listening to this, the day after it comes out, this will be near the top. But if not, you're going to have to search for it. Uh, the title is Trapper Forewarns Public About Line Up Cache. And so if you just were to type Trapper and Cache, C-A-C-H-E, in that search bar, this article should come up. This is out of... Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, I posted this up a few days ago, and basically, um, here's a, a just a little bit of of the the intro here. A Wyoming trapper has decided to exercise his right to set traps on public land in a highly traveled recreational trail, and it's blown up in the local media. This could turn out to be quite the hot topic for trappers throughout North America. Lots of elements here. So uh, the article is very long and in-depth, and it, it talks about this, this uh, unnamed trapper that's decided to do this. Um, so there's a, this, is a, a, this is another onion that has a lot of potential layers here, um, and, and I'm going to let you read through that and, and uh, think about it a little bit. I will be, I plan to discuss this in a future episode and maybe next week or the week after and just talk maybe a little bit about uh, the ethics around this what you would do what what you should do uh, what what I would do um, there's just a lot going on here um, and and one thing uh, to consider that I should mention uh, trapper wasn't named so this trapper might not even exist um, you never know nowadays with these articles where uh, you can have a, a spoof article or something that an, an animal rights group makes up to try and cause some controversy. So do keep that in mind. Um, but it does bring up a topic of discussion that we should really really think about and talk about. Um, what Think about what would I do in this situation. So check that out. Give me some feedback. jrodwood at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. And until next time, keep on talking trapping. Keep on thinking trapping. We'll catch you on the next episode. Hey, if it's trapping season, go out there and catch a fur, man. Take care. Thanks. Bye.